Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Have you wondered about the usefulness of scratch stocks? Have you considered hollow grinding your edge tools but you aren't sure where to start? Are you torn trying to decide which shiny new doodad to purchase next? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 44 of the show for February 27th, 2019. Before I start today's show, I want to take a minute to thank all of our patrons for your continued support of the show. And thanks to four new patrons this week, three of which I mentioned actually in episode 43 and uh, 43A, uh, when I mentioned there wasn't going to be a show last week, but uh, I'll mention them again, uh, just in case any of you weren't able to listen to that little update. Uh, so four new patrons, uh, Ivor Sonda, Thomas Corbin, Jacob Norton, and Richard Yescu. Thanks to all of you for signing up to support the show, and thanks to all of our patrons. Listener support helps to keep this show going, so if you'd like to support the show yourself, head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And if you're already a patron, again, I thank you, and be sure to head on over to the Patreon posts page to submit your questions and requests for this month's patron Q&A video that will be coming out in just a couple of days. And one other uh, item of business I do want to get out of the way, and I did mention this in my uh, my little update last week as well, but uh, I just want to say thanks to the guys from the Wood Talk podcast. Uh, Mark, Matt, Shannon, and Matt have pretty much set the standard for woodworking podcasts over the years, and uh, their show is going to be greatly missed. So, uh, thank you guys. I've been uh, privileged to get to know you over the years, and um, I hope you all uh, continue to uh, excel in your woodworking endeavors, and uh, thanks for everything you have done for woodworking over the years. So I'm still, uh, my voice is still kind of on the mend this week, so uh, I'm going to get right into the listener questions for this week. Hi, Bob. This is Andrew in Pennsylvania. Uh, I have a question about breadboard ends. Uh, I do mostly uh, sort of more modern-looking stuff, um, but I have to build a table for a kitchen, and it needs to be sort of a trestle style so that people can get around it easily. And I'm not terribly fond of the look of breadboards, and so I'm really wondering about are there alternatives to breadboards to help keep the tabletop uh, flat uh, or are there different ways to keep the tabletop flat without uh, the need for the breadboard ends. Uh, I hope it makes the show, and uh, I'll keep listening. Thanks. So keeping a tabletop flat without breadboard ends. Um, well, first of all, I'll give you my quick thought on breadboard ends. Um, I don't think they do all that much to keep tabletops flat. Um, I'm not sure, 100% sure that's why they are used. Um, I think it more, my opinion anyway, um, is that breadboards were were brought into fashion because um, 
they didn't like the the look of end grain. Um, so that was one way to kind of, to dress it up. I'm not so sure that it was, they were really all that functional. We still see, um, desk lids and tables that have breadboards that have cupped over the years. Um, and honestly, if you take a, uh, three or four foot long, you know, piece of wood, you can probably flex that along its length, the way that it would, you know, that, that a table would cup, you could probably flex that on your own, um, you know, by hand. So I'm not sure breadboards are really doing all that much to keep tabletops flat. Um, I think they probably help a little bit to keep the ends aligned so that the ends of the boards, if the glue fails, um, so that the ends of the boards don't necessarily get, um, so you don't feel like an unevenness in the top where the glue glue joint is. Um, and, and historically they were called clamps. So I think really what they were intended for is to kind of help to keep all the boards together and keep them from separating at the end. If the glue were to fail, um, I'm not so sure that they're intended to keep the ends flat. So, and, and I really don't think blood breadboards are a great solution for keeping tables flat. Um, I think, proper stock preparation is probably a better solution than breadboards for keeping the table flat. Um, in terms of alternatives or, or ways that you can help to support that table edge, um, I would say my number one um, solution would probably be to use some type of batten on the underside of the table. Um, and in a trestle table, this would kind of fit in pretty well because you've got the trestles underneath the table already. So if you were to, one, you can use those trestles um, by putting elongated screw holes in the trestles themselves and using that to hold the table in place. And by elongating the screw, the screw holes through the trestles themselves um, into the bottom of the table, th it'll allow the tabletop to move and expand and contract with the seasons and also um, the screws and the, the batten, the part of the, the top part of the trestle leg will help to keep that table flat. Um, and there's also no reason you couldn't add a couple of extra battens underneath the bottom of that tabletop as well in similar fashion. Um, you know, they might be an inch to an inch and a quarter, um, tall. And again, you put some elongated screw holes through the bottom of those and, um, mount that to the bottom of the tabletop just with a couple of screws, no glue, um, through those slots, those elongated holes, and that's going to allow your table to move, but it's going to help to hold it flat. That's probably going to be your best bet for keeping that tabletop flat. Um, but again, you don't want to ignore good stock preparation either. Um, so I would uh, make sure your stock is dry. Make sure before you mill it that um, it has equilibrated to the space that you're working in. Um, if possible, what would be even better is to equilibrate it to the space that it's going to live in, but that's not always necessarily possible. Um, but if it's for your own personal house and you're working in your house, then if you can equilibrate that wood to that area before you mill it, um, then mill it up, give it a day to move and see if it's going to move at all. And then finish mill it to final width, length, width, and thickness. And before you glue that tabletop together, um, and I think that in itself is going to prevent the majority of the movement and the trestle base should probably handle the rest. So no breadboards needed. So our second question comes from Joe Leonetti. Joe said, I enjoyed your extended topic on card scrapers. It was helpful and was, and I was one 
uh, who fell into the camp of pushing too hard. Yeah, I don't think you're alone, Joe. I think a lot of people do. Um, in that podcast on card scrapers, you briefly mentioned scratch stocks. For Christmas, I received the Ron Hawk tool for holding and using a scratch stock. I understand generally how to use the tool and a scratch stock. I would greatly appreciate it if you could please discuss it a bit more or dedicate a segment to scratch stock and what you can do with it. Uh, many thanks and keep up the good work. So yeah, um, scratch stocks are, are actually um, really, they're really cool. Um, you can do a lot with them. You'd be surprised um, the sizes of the moldings you can actually create with a scratch stock. Um, it's pretty impressive, actually, how much work you can do with them. Um, most moldings that you create with a scratch stock, however, are going to be fairly shallow. Um, so that's one thing I would say to keep in mind. So if you're going to make a scratch stock to make a molding, that molding could be fairly wide. Um, for example, maybe you might be dressing up the rails and styles of like a, you know, a, a period chest frame, uh, like a frame and panel chest or coffer or something like that. Um, kind of, I'm thinking along the lines of like what Peter Follinsby frequently makes, um, you know, in the in the 16th, 17th century style. Um, you know, the old oak joint chests. Um, they often have scratched moldings in them that are quite wide, but they're not deep moldings. They're fairly shallow. So that's one thing to keep in mind with a scratch stock is that you don't want your profile to be too tall or deep um, because that, that kind of creates problems um, referencing and holding things. So most scratch stock moldings tend to be fairly shallow so that they can be scratched into flat stock. Um, but you can make them fairly wide. Um, one of the things that I like to do with, um, with scratch stocks or when I'm making scratch stocks is that I try to find this, the thickest pieces of saw steel that I can find. So old rip saws, um, old two handed, uh, not two handed, but like, uh, like old, um, bucking saws, cross cut saws, something with a real thick steel plate. Um, or really thick card scrapers, you know, that are kind of too thick to flex. I find the thicker the steel, the better the scratch stock tends to work. Um, because the by nature, you're scraping that profile. By the, just by the nature of the design of the tool. You're not really cutting, you're scraping that profile. So in order to get a good scraped profile, you need to minimize flex as much as possible. And with a scratch stock... Um, you know, aside from burying that um, profile as close to the, the piece of wood that you're using for a fence as possible, um, you know, the, the next best, best thing is to use the thickest piece of scraper stock or saw steel, saw steel stock that you can get your hands on. So um, certainly do look for the thicker saw blades, thicker scrapers, um, thicker steel to use for scratch stock. Um, and honestly, I wouldn't be against even using, you know, like a, a 16th of an inch thick or, or an eighth inch thick piece of, um, tool steel. Uh, I would, I'd be willing to try that even if you had access to it. Um, the problem with that is it, it just might take you a little while to file that profile and in, be into, to such a thick piece of stock. But, um, I think a thick piece of, uh, steel is going to tends to work better than the thinner scrapers. Um, 
polish both faces of that scratch stock blade. Um, most definitely rub them on, uh, your, your coarse stone to get them flat and then run them all the way up through your fine polishing stones to get them smooth and, uh, and flat and polished. That's really going to help them hold the edge a little bit longer because you're not really burnishing them like you would a card scraper. Um, you're kind of just using the sharp edge between the, the sharp arras between the, um, between the face and the edge of that steel. So um, you're not burnishing or anything like that to get a hook. So um, it helps to polish that edge to kind of strengthen up the arras between the face and the edge of the scratch dock. Uh, and if you have, you know, fine sandpaper that you can polish the edge with as well after you file the profile, um, it certainly helps to uh, let that edge last a little bit, uh, a little bit longer. Um, also, don't be afraid to change the direction you're working. Scratch stocks can be pushed or pulled. So, um, you know, that's kind of the, the beautiful thing about using them compared to, say, a molding plane, which really only works in one direction. Um, you can't turn around and go the other way. With a scratch stock, you can push it or pull it. So if you run into some issues with um, some grain changes, um, just, you know, pull the, uh, pull the scratch stock in the other direction. Um, and it also lets you, you know, start to scrape part of the profile. If you're working on a long piece, maybe you need to then turn it around, um, you know, and, and go the other way. So, um, that's an, another thing that uh, scratch stocks can, can really do well is to, uh, scrape that profile in both directions. So that's another reason I would say, make sure that you polish, um, polish both faces because that will, will really help the profile. Um, and if you keep it sharp, if it if it starts to get dull, if those edges start to get rounded over again, just lightly file the the profiled edge. If you've already polished the faces, you shouldn't really have to do much with those. You might have to uh, wipe the burr off on your finest polishing stone after you uh, refile that that edge profile. Um, but lightly refile that edge profile and resharpen it, um, and you should be in pretty good shape. And uh, as long as you're using a wood that's you know fairly fairly hard. Uh, most hardwoods tend to work fine with scratch stocks. Um, the, the softer ones like poplar, um, basswood, things like that, they tend to get a little bit fuzzy. You can make them work, um, if you're real light with your touch. Um, but I've found that scratch stocks tend to work a little bit better with woods that are a little bit denser. Um, that's not to say again, that you can't use them on pine or poplar. Um, it just might take a, a bit of a, a sharper edge and you may need to do a little sanding, uh, after you finish scratching your profile, but yeah, great, um, great question, Joe, and great suggestion. I think, uh, uh, everyone should try scratch stocks because they're, uh, they're a great cheap little, uh, simple shop made way to make some really nice little, uh, molded details that otherwise would require uh, either an expensive router setup or, uh, or some molding planes. So our third question comes from Dave Chalice. He says, I had a few questions related to sharpening, mostly around hollow grinding. I've always sharpened freehand with good, but sometimes inconsistent results, but I'm considering hollow grinding as a speedier and more accurate alternative, especially as I like to experiment more with low angle planes with different bevel angles, etc. A few things I was wondering, what should I look for in a grinding wheel? 
I've never used one before, so no idea whether high or slow speed or wet or dry is preferable for using on plane blades and chisels. Two, are there any considerations around wheel diameter? Larger one would obviously give a less pronounced hollow, but is that a good or a bad thing? Three, can all of them be used for giving plane blades a slight radius or fixing major issues? Or are only high-speed grinders suitable for this? And four, is it possible to sharpen mortise chisels this way? I was always led to believe that these work better with a convex rather than a concave bevel. Okay. So, uh, one, what grinder, what grinding wheel to look for, which I look for in a grinding wheel. Um, I don't think it really matters. Um, high speed, slow speed, wet, dry, they all work. It really comes down to personal preference. Um, I use a six inch high speed grinder, um, because that's what I learned to use. Um, I, I, at one time I had built a hand cranked, um, wet grinder using a 10 inch replacement wheel for, um, the Grizzly Tormek clone. Um, I didn't actually have the Grizzly Tormek clone, but I did buy the replacement wheel just to make a, a hand cranked wet grinder. And I still have that wheel, but the, um, the, the grinder itself, I, I disassembled and took apart and, and, um, cause it, it just, it didn't work out that great for me. I wasn't that pleased with it. So um, maybe someday I'll, I'll remake something along those lines, but, um, uh, but for now I'm back to using a six inch high speed electric bench grinder, um, hand cranked, um, uh, hand cranked grinders, dry grinders are fine as well. Um, the challenge I've always found with those is finding one in decent shape. Most of them, the arbors tend to be kind of bent or, or not so straight or concentric and the wheels tend to wobble quite a bit. Um, and that can be really frustrating. It's not necessarily detrimental to the edge of the tool. It just gets kind of frustrating when you're trying to grind an edge and you've got a, a an arbor that's not true and it makes it difficult to, um, it makes it difficult to true the grinding wheel with a, with a dressing stone because, uh, the, the stone's not the the stone itself isn't spinning true. So, um, I ditched my old hand crank gr uh, dry grinder as well for that reason because the arbor just wasn't straight enough for my liking, um, and went back to a regular old cheap uh, high speed bench grinder. Um, now mine does happen to be variable speed, so I can slow it down to about eighteen hundred RPMs, um, but I typically don't. I usually just use it on its full speed. Um, and I cool the tool in water if it starts to get, uh, if it starts to warm up. Um, what I think is important is the wheel that you use on it. And I think that's the most important thing, whether you're using wet or dry or high speed or slow speed. Um, if you're using this primarily for grinding plain blades and chisels, you want the coarsest wheel you can find. I believe the wheels that I'm using are about 46 grit, um, which may sound absolutely, you know, barbaric, um, when you think about it, but you're, you're not trying to make a pretty edge off the grinder here. Like you might be for, um, turning tools that you would use, you know, on a powered high speed lathe, you're trying to remove steel as quickly as possible to fix a damaged edge or reestablish a hollow grind. And you're then going to refine that edge on your stones. So the benefit of the coarse wheel on the high speed grinder is that it's going to work very quickly. 
it's also the wheel is going to tend to glaze less quickly, which means it's going to heat your tool um, less quickly. And you're going to have fewer problems with um, overheating the steel and chances of damaging the, uh, the steel itself. So uh, look for a coarse wheel now on a, on a wet grinder, obviously you're not going to have any really chance of overheating the steel. Um, but the coarse wheel is going to allow you to work faster. Um, so, and again, we're not using the grinder to establish the, you know, the cutting edge. We're using it to fix the geometry, whether it's to fix a chipped edge or reestablish that hollow grind. So we want to work fast. We want to get that job over and done with. So coarsest wheel you can find. Um, the friable wheels are nice. Um, honestly, I have a, one of the blue Nortons, the, the Norton 3X wheels that I bought, but still haven't even installed on my grinder yet. Um, it's coming. Uh, I'm going to get to it at some point. Um, I just haven't done it yet. I've been using the um, 46 grit aluminum oxide, you know, regular wheel that that uh, that I got when I got the grinder, um, and it works just fine as long as you keep the stone dressed. So that's that's another important point. Keep the stone dressed and clean. Use you know a little tub of water to cool the tool if you need to. Um, and I find that that high speed grinder works just absolutely fine. In terms of wheel diameter, again I use a six inch. Uh, the considerations, six inch you can typically get narrower wheels for. Um, for me, that's a benefit because I will also grind things like molding plane irons. Um, and and gouges, carving tools, um, and in candle gouges, and in order to do that, you need very narrow grinding wheels, like you know quarter inch, uh, quarter inch or eighth inch thick grinding wheels. You're not going to find those too easily for an eight inch grinder. So that's one of the reasons that I like the six inch grinder. Just makes accessories a little bit more easy to find. The eight inch grinder is going to leave um, less of a hollow. Whether that's a good or a bad thing, I don't think it's good or bad. I think it's just different. Uh, it just comes down to what you prefer. If you do a lot of turning as well, most turners seem to prefer 8-inch wheels. So um, that might be a consideration for you if you do a lot of turning and you grind a lot of turning tools. And you don't want to buy two grinders. Well, an 8-inch might be a better choice for you then. Um, I hone my turning tools after... I do them after I, I put them on the grinder, so I don't worry about you know how deep the uh, deep the hollow is from the grinder. So I prefer six inch, but again, it really comes down to what you're going to do more, whether you're if you're going to need it a lot for turning tools, um, or if you want that capacity for for thinner wheels. Um, also, eight inch wheels tend to be a little bit more expensive than the six inch wheels, so when you need to replace a wheel, it's something to consider as well. Um, can they all be used for giving plane blades a slight radius or fixing fixing major issues? Yes, they can. Whether uh, high speed, slow speed, wet grinders, you can grind chips out with all of them. You can camber blades with all of them. Again, it's just going to come down to the speed. A high speed grinder is going to do it faster. Um, a slow speed grinder is going to do it just as well. Uh, it just might take a couple extra minutes to do it. A wet grinder is going to be able to do it again, just as well, it just might take you a half an hour to grind that chip out um, or, or put that camber in your uh, four plane blade. Whereas, you know, with a high speed grinder, it takes you five minutes. Um, so 
that's what it comes down to really is just the speed uh, but they're all capable of doing it just fine and as for grinding mortise chisels yeah absolutely you can put a hollow grind in a mortise chisel but i would recommend putting a significant um, secondary bevel on it just to protect that fragile edge and keep it from chipping when you're trying to, to pry chips out I prefer a concave bevel on my mortise chisels, so that's the only reason that I don't hollow grind my mortise chisels, um, but there's no reason you can't hollow grind a mortise chisel. Again, just I would recommend honing uh, a pretty significant secondary bevel um, on the mortise chisel just to protect the delicate edge so that you don't snap the tip off, um, give it a little bit more strength there. But yeah, you should be just fine. So last question for today comes from Jerome Gunderson. He says, I'm in the process of flattening some nice wide walnut boards for a dining table I'm working on. The grain on a few of the boards is pretty tricky as it reverses direction halfway down the board, causing some tear out as I move down the length of it with a plane. What suggestions do you have for planing a long board to be dead flat without having to reverse the direction of the way I'm working? Um, that's a tough one. So, um, you know, grain runs in a certain direction sometimes it runs in multiple directions and in order to deal with that we frequently have to change the direction in it in which we're planing so if you're really desiring not to change the direction i think your best bet is going to be to change tactics and and not plane um, you can try scraping um, i mean i would try the first thing i would try is to um, resharpen your plane blade and put the chip breaker as close to the edge as you possibly can um, you know within a 64th of an inch or less of the edge of the plane blade is not too close put it as absolutely close as you can get it make sure the chip breaker is tuned so that it sits really tightly and flat against the back of the plane iron and take extremely extremely light like you know fluffy shavings things that are kind of floating away um, and then you might be able to smooth that board against the grain. Um, but if the grain is, is reversing and it's really that squirrely, um, chances are you're not going to be able to hand plane against the grain. You're either going to have to change the direction um, or you're going to have to switch tactics. You can try planing across the grain as well, and that might help to pull up some of the tear out. But again, that's not going. That's probably not going to smooth the surface to the level that you're you're looking for. So, um, I would say either you know you're gonna you may just have to suck it up and change directions and and, and plane in the other direction. And it's not as as hard as it sounds, you know, to to switch from planing left-handed to right-handed um, or vice versa. Um, it's just one of those things you kind of have to get used to, and it's a versatile skill. Um, you know, we we use we we work ambidextrously in carving all the time, um, so it is worthwhile to learn to plane in both directions for these circumstances and, and these situations. Um, again, I think your other option is going to be to switch tactics, which is going to be um, you know to switch to a scraper or something to that effect. But um, if you're looking to plane a long board dead flat and not change the direction of the way you're working. Um, I think you're going to be hard pressed to be able to do that, um, you know, with a hand plane. If the grain's reversing, you're just really going to have to deal with um, deal with that grain direction. Um, 
try again, try resharpening and setting that chip breaker as close to the edge as you can. Um, but if that doesn't work and you still want to stick with the hand plane, I think you're just going to have to, uh, you're going to have to deal with having to, having to change direction. So that's going to do it for our questions for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the contact form. So today's for today's main topic, I'm calling it the hand tools that I just don't need. Uh, this topic was suggested by Joe Linetti. And he said, thanks for your episode on shooting boards. Within my first year of woodworking, I purchased the Lee Nielsen 51 shooting plane and a shooting board from Evenfall Studios. They are certainly very fine and very expensive equipment. What I discovered was that after about another two years of woodworking, I really didn't need them for squaring the ends of my boards as I had picked up the skills I initially lacked and could do it without needing a shooting board or specialized plane. This made me think of a potential topic for your show. Could you please discuss other tools and jigs beginning hand tool woodworkers might be tempted to purchase and then find with some practice that they really don't need? So I thought this one would be fun, um, but I do want to preface it by saying that um, I, this this really comes down to, to personal preference and, and I'm basing my, my suggestions on the way that I work. Um, you know, some of these tools a lot of folks might have and use frequently um, and feel like they wouldn't be without them. Um, and that, of course, is, is absolutely fine. Um, and furthermore, don't uh, don't think that, you know, if one of the if if you've purchased some of the tools that are on this list, um, this is not meant as a, as a critique or an insult. You know, this is just one of those Things where, you know, based on the way that I work, I, I don't use these tools and I, I really don't see uh, see any necessity for them in my work. But uh, you may think otherwise, but I thought it would be a, a fun little thing to, to kind of go through. Um, just to, to talk to the, the shooting board um, and the shooting plane that, that Joe mentioned, um, I do agree that I think that the, that shooting plane, I think, is kind of not really necessary and, and for me... Um, not really functional for reasons that I discussed in um, in the episode on shooting boards. Um, but I do still have a shooting board itself, um, and I do use that. So um, I would say that the shooting board is probably a, a good idea, um, whether that s style of shooting plane, um, as I mentioned in the shooting board episode, that style of shooting plane just doesn't work for me for the way I use a shooting board. But, um, but I do use a shooting board, and I, I do think they are um, are very necessary um, for a lot of the work that we do um, uh, in using hand tools. So uh, I do think shooting boards are, are pretty uh, pretty useful. Um, so here's some tools and and jigs or appliances that I don't think. Uh, are really necessary for the the way that I work, um, and you may want to consider, you know, whether or not if you're thinking about it, um, is it something that's really going to help? Is it just a replacement for a skill, uh, et cetera, et cetera? So, uh, the first one I've got is is what I think the manufacturers call an edge trimming block plane. Um, when I first saw this tool years ago, you know, 
20, 30 years ago when I, when I first started, um, I thought it actually might be kind of useful. Um, essentially, it's a block plane um, with a built-in 90-degree fence. So you run it along the edge of a board, and it makes a perfect 90-degree edge, which sounds like a great thing uh, until you realize that's about the only thing that it does. Um, and it also is very dependent upon how flat that initial edge already, uh, that initial face that you're going to ride that block plane on already is. So for me, um, I really, as I, as I started to gain some skill with my hand planes, it occurred to me more and more that this is really not a very useful tool for most people, myself included. So, um, if you have the skills to be able to flatten the face of a board with a, a four plane and a triplane or joiner plane, um, then you most likely can use those same skills to plane the edge of a board square to that face with a four plane and triplane. So the edge trimming block plane becomes kind of unnecessary. Um, if you're using machines to get the faces of your boards flat, Again, you're not really going to need that edge trimming block plane because you're probably going to use your machines to get the first edge square as well. Um, so to me, it seems like kind of a one of those tools that was invented um, and just may not have a whole lot of use really. So um, I never saw saw the point in one. And in fact, if you're working even with uh, really thin stock, I think shooting boards tend to do a, a better job than something like the edge trimming block plane. So that's one that, uh, for me, um, just don't need. The second one that I came up with is uh, is related to the edge trimming block plane, and that is a joiner plane fence. So that's this is a, a piece of iron or uh, steel or aluminum or whatever that essentially attaches to the side of your joiner plane to turn your joiner plane into a giant edge trimming block plane. And for the same reasons I just talked about not needing an uh, edge trimming block plane, I don't see a need for a joiner plane. Um, if you learn to use a triplane with a cambered iron, the joiner plane fence becomes something you just don't need, and it becomes much quicker to fix an out-of-square edge using that triplane and the cambered iron than it does to put a fence on a plane with a, a perfectly square edge, make sure that that blade is lined up perfectly square to the fence of the, the joiner plane fence. Um, and then make sure that the, the you're holding everything just perfectly so that uh, you can get that edge nice and square. Um, you know, by the time you've got the joiner fence attached, in most cases, you could have the edge squared up with a, with a triplane with a cambered iron. So, uh, again, another tool that I, I don't really see the need for. Um, and uh, in fact, I don't think it helps a beginner because it doesn't help you to learn the technique of using the triplane with the cambered iron um, because it's two different methods. The joiner plane fence is something that you would use with a straight iron and it's a way to force you to hold the plane square to the face of the board. And with the um, triplane and the cambered iron method, we're not holding the plane square to the face of the board. We're using the camber of the iron to address any out of square along that edge. So it's actually two different techniques. It's teaching 
two different techniques, so it's not going to help you to learn that other technique. So uh, joiner plane fence off my list. Swan neck chisels. Uh, I guess these are meant for cleaning out the bottom of a mortise. Uh, again, not really sure why I care about what the bottom of a mortise looks like. Uh, I chop it. I pare out. I uh, pry out the waste with my mortise chisels. Um, if I need to get deeper, I chop the mortise a little bit deeper, um, and I'm good to go. So uh, once there's a tenon in there, the bottom of that mortise is never going to be seen. So swan neck chisels, not don't really have a use for those. Uh, another tool not on my list. Related to the swan neck chisel, how about a corner chisel? Um, I can kind of see the usefulness in these for timber framing, the the real big ones that are used for for timber framing. You know, making big inch and a half, two inch wide mortises in heavy beams for barns and post and beam construction. I don't really see the usefulness in a half inch wide corner chisel. Um, there's really no timber that I have ever worked with um, that is going to cause that many problems making a mortise that you need a corner chisel. So, uh, yeah, this is just one that, I mean, they're, they look like they would be a real bear to sharpen and, uh, and keep at 90 degrees. And, uh, I just don't really see a use for a corner chisel. So that's another one, uh, not on, not in my tool chest. So the next one could be a single tool or a pair of tools and that's uh, side rabbit planes. So this is one that um, I actually had a pair of way back in the day when I first started along the hand tool journey. They seemed like they would be real useful. Um, and one of the early books that I read uh, on woodworking suggested that, you know, for hand tool, for using hand tools, some of the hand tools that you would want to have in your in your kit would be a pair of side rabbit planes or, or one of those, you know, coming and going, push and pull type side rabbit planes. So I had one, never used it. Um, and these are tools that have been around for a while. They made them in wooden versions back in the 19th century. Um, but I've yet to really figure out where their usefulness really lies. Um, typically we're making, you know, if, if you're making a rabbit or a dado, I mean, a, a rabbit, if you're making a rabbit, you really don't need a side rabbit plane to make it wider. You can take your rabbit plane, your unfenced rabbit plane, lay it on its side and make the rabbit wider. So I don't really see the usefulness in a side rabbit plane there. If you're making a dado, yeah, you can't really make them wider. Um, but you probably can plane your panel a little thinner. Um, I suppose if you've got say a 13, you know, maybe, maybe all you've got is a seven eighth inch, uh, wide dado plane and you've got a shelf that's 15 sixteenths of an inch thick and you really don't want to plane the edges of that shelf down to seven and seven eighths of an inch to fit the dado. Then I suppose maybe you might find a side rabbit plane useful to widen that dado a little bit. So you're uh, 15 sixteenths panel would fit. Um, but I think I would probably rather plane the edges of that panel a little bit thinner. I feel like I would have more control that way 
Because um, to me, side rabbit planes, they just don't have a, a nice long sole. So if you've created a, a nice rabbit with a nice straight edge or a dado with a, a nice straight edge, and then you take this tiny little rabbit plane that's usually sometimes smaller than a, a block plane, and you plane the edge, the inside edge of that dado, uh, I'd be afraid getting it out, you know, not straight, planing it out of straight, uh, and having a gap when you put everything together. So, uh, my preference is to plane the panel. So side rabbit planes, not something I ever found a use for. The next one on my list are joinery floats. Uh, these are another ones that they're, they're, some have some opinions say that there are historical evidence that they existed. Um, I'm not so sure. Uh, we know plane makers used floats. Whether or not there were separate floats made just for adjusting joinery, I'm not so sure. Um, I've never found a situation where I thought one of these tools would be useful or better than one of the other tools I already had. Um, I can adjust tenons just fine with you know a chisel or with a router plane um, or even with a rasper file, which is essentially what a float is. Um, and if it's the inside of a mortise that needs adjusting, uh, if it's not a through mortise, a float isn't going to be all that helpful. Uh, and you really need to use a chisel anyway. So I've never run into a situation where I thought a joinery float would be a useful tool. So that's another one that does not get a spot in my tool chest. Okay, number seven. Uh, this one could could probably be uh, argued a little bit, and it's a dial or digital caliper. Now, full disclosure, I do own both of these. I own a, a cheap plastic dial caliper that was um, part of uh, one of my late uncle's tools that I inherited, um, and I also do have a battery-powered digital caliper, but I really I don't use these in handwork, um, where I find them useful, uh, is in things like machine setup. So, you know, if you've got a shop where you've got some machines that you've got to maintain and set up, um, you know, then a dial caliper or digital caliper is going to be uh, a pretty useful tool. Um, so definitely something you might want to consider for, uh, your machine setup and your machine maintenance. But as for measuring wood, um, I have never found a reason that I needed to measure wood with any kind of, of caliper, uh, dial or digital. I really don't need to know um, the dimensions of my wood to that kind of tolerance um, because it's, chances are it's going to move out of that tolerance anyway as soon as the temperature and humidity changes. So, um, you know, I plane to fit. When it fits, it's good. I don't need to know what that measurement is. And I'm not setting up a machine where I need to be repeatable. Um, that In handwork, that's what we use marking gauges for. So uh, I use gauges. I don't use, you know, precision measuring tools in uh, my woodworking when I'm focusing primarily on handwork. Machine setup, maybe. Handwork, no dial or digital caliper. Number eight, a butt mortise plane. Now, some of you may be thinking, what on earth is a butt mortise plane? Um, look it up. Definitely Google it. Lee Nielsen makes one. 
Um, I believe this is actually a tool that Stanley never made, believe it or not. Um, but uh, there are other historical examples of such a tool. Um, and Lee Nielsen did go ahead and copy one of those. It's a plane for installing butt hinges, for making the mortises for butt hinges. Um, and it is a plane that I have never, ever um, come across a situation where I looked in my toolkit and I looked at what I was doing and said, man, I really wish I had a butt mortise plane. Um, I don't really understand. I don't even really understand exactly how they're used, but I really can't see how they can make um, making hinge mortises any easier than it already is. Um, mortises for butt hinges, especially in cabinet work, um, is already so simple as it is um, that I can't see it becoming any easier using a butt mortise plane. Um, if you've got a fairly, you know, well-sized mortise, maybe you've got a really big hinge for an entry door or something like that. Um, I think a router plane probably would, would serve the purpose just as well, if not better than a butt mortise plane. Um, and for most cabinet hinges, either a small router plane or just a couple marking gauges and a chisel, uh, has always done the job well for me. So a butt mortise plane, number eight on my list of tools that I just don't need. Number nine, uh, this is another plane, a chisel plane. Um, I've never run into a situation where I have needed to plane into a corner. Um, I can see some folks arguing that yeah, they work great for cleaning up glue squeeze out. Um, in a corner, like maybe in a, a drawer box or a dovetail carcass. Um, again, it's it's not a situation where I've ever really wished for one of those tools. Um, I tend to use uh, a toothbrush with a little warm water and clean out any glue squeeze out when I assemble the project before the glue dries. Um, so I usually don't have a problem Um if you do still have a little glue residue left over in those corners, um, a scraper or a chisel seems to work just fine for me. So uh, chisel plane, not something I've ever found that I've needed. And my last one, number 10, are crank neck chisels and gouges. Um, some folks swear by these things for cleaning up dados or, or getting in weird spots. Um, I've never found myself in a situation where I needed a chisel with a, a, a Z-shaped a Z chisel. Um, I've always been able to use the tools that I have at hand. Um, I can see where these tools would have been useful to pattern makers. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously that is where um, where they earn their bread and butter. And those were the, the tradesmen that used them the most were pattern makers. Um, and maybe in, in some other trades such as you know, stock making like gun stock making and things like that, they might be useful. Um, but for the majority of the cabinet furniture type woodworking that I do, crank neck, cranked neck chisels and gouges, uh, just not a tool that I need in my kit. 
so that was a a fun little topic, a little tongue in cheek, of course, but um, you know, always fun to think about these things. And that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and allowing me to do this. I'm extremely grateful for all the support you've all provided. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions, because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash HTT044. In the show notes, you can find any links that I referred to in today's show. You can also find links to follow me on all my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon and get your questions answered in the monthly patron Q&A video, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal. You'll find links to do so in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com support. So thank you again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.